Well, good morning, everyone. It's <clears throat> wonderful uh, to worship uh, with uh, people who sing with great passion. And uh, so thank you, uh, Kiwan and Colleen, for leading us this morning. And thank you, um, all the members here, for singing with great, great gusto. It's, uh, it's very encouraging to us all as we praise our God. Please, uh, please join me in prayer before I read the scripture, which is Psalm 85, and then we'll join together and see what the Lord has to say to us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have sung this morning about the living hope that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. We have been reminded, O Lord God, that there are times of refreshing for all those who turn in faith to Christ, who worship you as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Father, if we look honestly at the world in which we live, the state of our own nation, we see great need for hope. We see great need for, for us to be salt and light. That we draw our hope from you, that we might share that hope with others. We are dismayed at times, Lord God, by the, the situations and the events that take place in our culture. Whether it's in politics or in the economy, whether it's with how to deal with an ongoing pandemic, with how it is, Lord God, to deal with just those with whom we disagree and somehow cannot find the ability to speak civilly to one another despite our disagreements. Here is where you send us to be salt and light. Here's where you send us to show how it can be that we can disagree, yet speak words of peace and wholeness to one another, and even to those with whom we disagree. And so we pray, Lord God, for shalom to flow from our hearts as it flows into our hearts from you, that we would continue to be a people who are salt and light as you have made us, that we would draw life and hope and the very sustenance that we need to follow you and to serve you in our homes and in our neighborhoods and our places of work, in our schools, among our friends and our families. Lord God, that we would not keep the blessings that you have given to us to ourselves, but with great generosity and cheerfulness and hope and joy, share the, the wonderful News that there is a God who cares and who loves. There is a Savior who has bled and died and now lives forevermore. That there is a Spirit who enlivens and energizes and who brightens and who leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, who comforts us in our sorrow, who gives us every reason to look forward to the coming day and the day after that. So we thank you, Lord God, for the, the, the power of your word, for the life of your Son, and for your church. Well, Father, we can gather together on a day like this, in a time like this, and know that we are here by your grace, that we are here by your appointment, <clears throat> that there are no accidents, O oh Lord God, but always opportunities to enjoy, to experience more of your presence, and especially, Lord God, in the sharing of the wonderful news that Jesus Christ is Lord that God the Father reigns over all, that his Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit, enlivens and energizes us to follow with 
faithfulness, and hope. We come now to your word, Lord God, as those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And you promise, O Lord God, that those who hunger and thirst for such righteousness, for your righteousness, will be satisfied. And as we are satisfied, O Lord, may we share that same satisfaction as well. Speak to us, Lord God, from your word. We place ourselves willingly under your authority in listening to your word. This we ask, Father, in Jesus' strong and precious name. Amen. This is a, a psalm of a Korah. As we continue our, our journey through, we're going to uh, take a break after this psalm and we'll start our new series on Zechariah next Sunday. But this uh, psalm of Korah, Psalm 85, begins, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Judah. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turn from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. And most uh, scholars agree that Psalm 85 was written shortly after the first caravan of Jews returned to Israel after 70 years of captivity under three separate empires, starting with the Babylonians, then the Medes, and then the Persians. However, <clears throat> post-captivity Israel, uh, the landscape there no longer flowed with milk and honey as it did when that first generation from the Exodus entered the Promised Land. Jerusalem and the walls surrounding it lay in ruins. The temple was a pile of stones, rocks, and rubble. The fields and the vineyards were overgrown. They were uncultivated. And in the words of Habakkuk, there were no cattle in the stall. There were no fruit on the vine. It was, it was magnificent desolation as far as the eye could see. It's important to realize also that many of the Jews who returned to Jerusalem, who returned to Israel at this time, many of them had never seen their homeland. They'd only heard stories about it. And so it's conceivable that some of them would have seen some of the wonders of the pagan world. If they had been taken into Babylon, they would have seen the marvelous hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the wonders of the ancient world. They would have been surrounded by all of the trappings of pagan civilization, beautiful temples, landscapes, gardens, cultivated fields. They may have been captives as well in exile, but by God's grace, in obedience to what Jeremiah the prophet had told them, they had 
built homes for themselves. They had married off their children. They had begun to build a life, perhaps even establish careers in captivity. They were surrounded by all of the trappings of pagan culture, as I said, beautiful temples, homes, careers, even a community, a network of fellowship, which somehow knitted them together. So try to imagine what it was like to leave all of that and return to a land that you've only heard about, described as beautiful, particularly the gleaming temple that Solomon had built, and picture what scene greeted them when they arrived in Jerusalem. So imagine you're leaving New York City and going to some place where there is just absolute devastation. And being told, this is where you're going to spend the rest of your life. This is where you're going to build and rebuild and restore and renew your culture, your community, your religion. This is where you're going to rebuild, restore, and renew your religious identity as well as a nation. If you can picture that, picture going to a place where there are none of the conveniences that they would have experienced in Babylon or under the Medes or under the Persians, then you get a sense of the emotions that were sort of running helter-skelter through the minds of these exiles as they return. They have returned to their homeland, but as one scholar has noted, A change of address does not necessarily imply a change of heart. You think about it, 70 years is a long time to spend being exposed to pagan culture. Their knowledge of God is likely as desolate as the city of Jerusalem and as barren as the surrounding countryside. So after acknowledging God's grace and showing favor to the land and returning the people back to it, Korah, noting their change of address, now asks God to change their heart. In addition to physical restoration, which is important, Korah prays that God would now bring to them spiritual renewal and restoration as well. They need revival. And since only God has the power to change their address, only God then has the power to change their heart. And so Psalm 85 really is a prayer that is motivated by confidence in the life-giving, faith-renewing, heart-changing power of the grace of God. So if we look at the psalm and break it down in terms of what is the the big idea, the idea that grace changes everything, that grace is in fact the means by which God changes our address and our heart, the psalm would, as I've broken it down, would look like this, that grace means that God treats us better than our sins deserve. God's grace is then the foundation for spiritual renewal and revival. And God's grace then provides us everything we need to keep us faithful to him. So God's grace means that he treats us better than our sins deserve. The the first three verses of Psalm 85 display the fact that God was favorable to the land, that he restored the people of Israel back to their homeland. Just a, a brief history, remember that after King Solomon died, civil war divided Israel into two nations. You had ten tribes forming the northern kingdom of Israel. You had two tribes forming the southern kingdom of Judah. The resulting civil war also impacted the spiritual life of both nations. 
both nations continued a pattern of covenant breaking and disobedience to God and God being faithful to his covenant, being faithful to his own character and glory would send prophet after prophet after prophet telling Israel and Judah essentially the same message. Don't do that. Stop sinning. Turn back. Turn back to God. Turn away from your sin. Turn to him. After centuries of continued disobedience, first the northern kingdom fell. Israel fell to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. About 120 or 200 years later, Judah falls to Babylon in 586 B.C. And as Judah goes into exile, as they go into captivity, God sends the prophet Jeremiah to tell the people there, you read it in Jeremiah 29, I know the plans I have for you, says God to the exiles, plans to prosper you and to give you a future and a hope. So I want you to go there. I want you to pray for the city that I'm sending you to. I want you to build homes. I want you to you know, cultivate fields. I want you to have children, marry them off, because you're going to be there for 70 years. And at the end of that time, I will gather you back to your homeland. Psalm 85 is written in the aftermath of God keeping his promise. But take note. There is no mention in the psalm and even if you go back and read the selections in the Old Testament about the return to the promised land, there is no mention of any repentance on behalf of the nation. Except really for Daniel's confession in Daniel 9, there is no acknowledgement by the people, particularly in Psalm 85, that they have done anything wrong to deserve having been in exile in the first place. That, in and of itself, the fact that God shows favor, that he's returned his people to land without any indication of repentance on their part, is a function of his grace. He did it because he made a promise. I'm going to pull you back to your homeland after 70 years. Because I'm, when I change your address, that's where I'm going to change your heart. So he doesn't wait for their heart to change before he brings them back to restore and renew them. He puts them back in the land, and then he starts the process of changing their heart. We've seen this movie before. This is exactly what God did when he delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. First, he changed their address. Once he changes their address, then through Moses, he gives them the law. This is how you are now to live. I have saved you from one form of life, from being enslaved and enchained, and now I'm going to set you free by obedience to my law. So he changes our address before he changes our heart. In fact, God changes our address in order to change our heart. And we see this same pattern repeated in the New Testament as well. Paul writes in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, this dramatic language that he uses to describe this dramatic process. He says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The past tense there is important. He has delivered us. He has transferred us. All by a work and function of his grace. So that we might, in Christ, know and experience redemption and the forgiveness of sins. That involves a change of address and a change of heart. Romans 5.8 says something similar when Paul writes, God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, while we were living at our former address, 
living out in the world, if you will, in disobedience to God, while we were still living out there in captivity, Christ died for us so that we might now live under the umbrella and the smile and the radiance of God's glory and grace in Christ. That Christ died in order to save us from God's wrath against us. The Bible is clear. You go back to what we read about in Psalm 83, that because of their sin, Israel deserved to be destroyed, to be remembered no more, as do we. That's the, the point that um, Dr. Tom made when he read about total depravity, that we are born under that sentence of condemnation. But God is gracious, and he treats us better than our sins deserve. He treats us better than our depravity deserves. He forgives our guilt. He covers our sin. He changes our address. He changes our heart. All of that is his work, his doing, his will, his grace. You see, given their history of covenant-breaking disobedience, Israel deserved to be sent to exile. They didn't deserve to be returned to their homeland. That was an aspect of grace. That God would transfer them from the kingdom of darkness into the place where he would now bestow upon them all of the promises that he made to them, going back to the Garden of Eden, then displayed through Noah and then Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob. You can trace it until you get to the the book of Deuteronomy, and Moses rehearses the history of God's faithfulness to Israel. The God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves his people delivered them from their captivity and he placed them in the very region where they would experience restoration and renewal and revival. He graciously chose to forgive his people. That was his act. That was his doing. That was his choice. That is his mercy, his great loving kindness. He chose to be favorable to the land because the land was where his people could experience restoration, repentance, renewal, and revival. In fact, changing their address was the first step toward changing their heart. In fact, showing favor to the land is, is also in, indicative of the fact that God's redemption, when he saves it's not just people that he saves. It's not just people that he renews. But he renews the land as well. You see this laid out in Romans 8. At the end of Romans 8, or in the middle of Romans 8, Paul talks about the fact that creation itself groans under the weight of our sin. And so God's plan of redemption not only includes a people to it for himself, but an earth that is restored and renewed and revived. And so God shows favor to the land by bringing his people back to it, so that he might bless them in it. We, under the new covenant, obviously, we don't have a homeland as a church. We don't have a geographic place that says, ah, that's where we think. Why? Because like salt, God has shaken us out into the world. This is our home, if you will, in terms of mission and witness and being those people that are to display the glory and the grace of God. He has created us to be a community sent out on a mission to proclaim the glory and the goodness and the grace of God. It starts, of course, with God treating us better than our sins deserve. 
it starts with understanding that God has forgiven our iniquity, that he has covered our sin. And those two words, sin and covering, are important to get a grasp on in terms of what they mean. Because in Hebrew, the the word sin describes a a weighty burden that presses down on us. Uh, it's It's like a weight lifter you know, going up to lift the weight, and as he, you know, as he drops into a squat position, he just can't quite raise it over his head. No matter how hard he tries, no matter how hard he trains, he just can't lift that weight. And sin presses down on us, and so what God has to do, because we can't lift it ourselves, he lifts it, but he does more than lift it. He lifts it for the purpose of carrying it away. So that we don't have to bear that burden ever again. But he does more than that. It's like those commercials. But wait, there's more. Not only does he lift our sin and carry it away, he covers it. The word covered here implies the the effects. Didn't we see this when it rained so heavily a few weeks ago? What does a flood do? It just washes everything in its path right out of the way. Cover here has that same effect, where God washes our sin completely away, just removes the the guilt and the stain and the iniquity of it. When God carries away the burden of our sin and guilt, he washes it away with his grace and his mercy and his steadfast love. That's what Korah prays for his people. That's what God accomplished for us in Christ. Because Jesus did, in fact, lift the burden of our sin by carrying it to the cross. And then he covered our sin by washing it away with his blood. And when Jesus covers our sin, God then chooses not to remember it. Or, as some of you know the the verse already that I'm going to in Psalm 103, verse 13... The psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That forgiveness is an act of sovereign grace. Think of how far the east is from the west. They never meet. He's put that away. He's lifted it away. He's carried it away. He's washed it away. When God forgives our guilt, he covers our sin. When he covers our sin, he withdraws his wrath. When he withdraws his wrath, he sets aside his anger against us. When he sets aside his anger against us, he showers us with his grace. And God's grace means he treats us better than our sins deserve. And that grace then becomes the foundation for spiritual renewal and revival. He changes our address, now he changes our heart. We tend to think of uh, revival, and that's what really the the aim of verses 4 through 9 are, right? Restore us again. Those words restore, return, all deal with God returning, reviving, renewing. We tend to think of revival in terms of mass conversions, mass baptisms, massive numerical growth. And that is certainly part of revival, but in its essence, what revival is, is a change of heart leading to a change of mind, leading to a change of lifestyle. That it's the start of a lifelong lifestyle of learning what it means to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Loving our neighbor as ourselves. 
It's God changing us from the inside out, renewing our mind, and transforming us more and more to the image of His Son. This is what Korah prays for. That the, the people of God would in fact be the people of God. That they would bear His name. So that revival is about renewing our passion for God and His glory. It's about renewing our desire uh, to worship God in spirit and truth. It's about renewing our commitment to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's about renewing our hunger to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before our God. It's about learning the ABCs of Christianity, and then going further after we have learned them. It really is also the fulfillment of our prayerful desire for God to show us his steadfast love and grant us his salvation. And then, after praying for revival, and, and essentially these rhetorical questions, will you be angry, will you keep, you know, all of those things, the fact that he wants God, he says, look, I'm going to, I pray my prayer, and then in verse 8 he says, now let me, let me be quiet, and let me hear what God will speak. Right, I've, I've laid out for him, my adoration, you were favorable to your land, you've shown us grace. I prayed for revival, and now I'm going to just be quiet and let God speak. And what he wants to hear from God is a word of peace, a word of wholeness, a word of shalom. And the reason why God speaks peace to us is to draw us toward him, to assure us that we don't need to be perfect in order for him to love us. That salvation is near to those who fear God with a fear that craves the safety of his gracious embrace. It's the kind of fear that's expressed in the words of the old hymn, Thy mercy is more than a match for my heart, which wonders to feel its own hardness depart. Dissolved by thy goodness, I fall to the ground and weep to the praise of the mercy I found. The fear of God is what motivates Korah to pray, but let them not turn back to folly. You know what? I just jumped a whole page of notes. <laughs> I was wondering why I kept going so fast. Um, in terms of, just, let's go step back from in terms of revival. Because you probably had it on the screen. You think, wait, where is he going? Yeah. This is live TV, folks. This is what it is. <laughs> And you're gracious, so you'll let me do that. Um, so revival is, is really God making us whole by speaking words of peace. Uh, when we fear, he will speak a word of judgment. I have, uh, throughout my, my career in, in ministry, I have spoken with, I've, I've counseled people who, who have been damaged by the church in one way or another. I mean, well-meaning folk, but they've been damaged nonetheless by well-meaning folk. Uh, who has somehow communicated to them the idea that God will not speak truth or peace to them, that he will not speak kindly to them, that that idea of God speaking peace is so foreign to them, they cannot conceive that such a thing is possible. But it is. That's the whole point of verses 8 and 9. You see, where, where we mere mortals will often speak words that hurt, cut, and destroy, God speaks words that heal, repair, and create. 
He speaks words of peace, in other words, that make us whole. Words like, I forgive you. Words like, I love you. Words like, welcome home. I like how uh, commentators Dennis uh, Tucker and Jamie Grant say it in their commentary on the Psalms, talking about the speech of God and speaking peace. He says, the speech of God is a creative act. It brings things into being. It transforms reality. The voice of God creates a new reality from nothing. God's speech brings order and beauty beyond imagination. You may know, you may already be aware that the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. That's a marvelous word for which there is no one English word to adequately translate it. Shalom uh, describes an all-inclusive well-being, an all-inclusive peace, an all-inclusive safety. It includes love and faithfulness and righteousness, blessing, even praise. It describes as, as we have seen in our study of the Sermon on the Mount so far, Shalom describes someone, a man, a woman, a child, flourishing under the grace of God. One of the best definitions of Shalom is from an Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann. And it's going to be on the screen. It's, it's a lengthy one. That's why I have it up there. And you can leave it up there after I read it as well, Carson. Brueggemann writes this, that shalom is well-being that exists in the very midst of threats. It is well-being of a material, physical, historical kind, not idyllic pie in the sky, but salvation in the midst of trees and crops and enemies. In the very places where people always have to cope with anxiety, struggle for survival, and deal with temptation. It is well-being of a very personal kind, but it is also deliberately corporate. If there is to be well-being, it will not be just for isolated, insulated individuals. It is rather security and prosperity granted to a whole community, young and old, rich and poor, powerful and dependent. Always, we are all in it together. That's what God is doing for us and through us as a community. He is making us whole, that we might then go out and with his word and by his grace, with the help of his spirit, preach and proclaim and help achieve wholeness in the lives of others. This is what the Bible encourages us to do because this is what God has done for us. And I love the fact that uh, Brueggemann points out the idea that it is in the very places where people always have to cope with anxiety, struggle for survival, and deal with temptation. Because it's in our imperfection that God makes us perfect. It's through the working through those things that we understand the, the, the depth, the breadth, the width, the height of shalom. That even in our mess, God says, I got you covered. That even in our imperfection, God says, my grace will supply what is lacking in your life and in your heart and in your soul. That's peace. That's shalom. That's wholeness. And so what it means when God speaks shalom to us, when he speaks a word of peace to us, 
He does so with the aim of making us whole people. That's why then Korah prays, surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. Because to, to know a God who speaks peace when we expect judgment, that ought to create a sense of awe and reverence for him. That the very one who holds our eternal destiny in his hands chooses by his grace not to crush us as he does his son, but to embrace us because his son is crushed for us. That's shalom. And that kind of awe draws us like a magnet into the presence of God. It's the same kind of awe that I've never been to it, but I've seen pictures, but I imagine some of you have, that draws you to the edge of the Grand Canyon because you just can't help but sort of, ooh, that's really big. And that's a long way down. Or if you've ever been to Niagara Falls and you just stand there in awe and wonder, and you look at it from the American side and if the border ever was opened up from the Canadian side. Or, or when Jill and I were, were hiking recently in Maine, we got to the top of Cadillac Mountain. And we looked at this, just the scenery around Bar Harbor. It's just, it's just, you can't take it all in because it's so overwhelming, that kind of awe. And I'm often challenged in my own devotional life, do I worship God with that kind of awe? That when I get up in the morning and I set my coffee on my desk and I open my Bible, right? Awe! And just wonder, and that's why I write every day in my journal, thank you for safe passage, because the very fact that I'm alive to yawn and to have that coffee, to have that Bible in front of me, is because God saw me through the night. And he's going to see me through the day. I don't deserve any of that. Awe and wonder and amazement. And so that's why God speaks peace to us. We're back on track now. <laughs> Right? That's why, dissolved by thy goodness, I fall to the ground and weep to the praise of the mercy I found. And that's why Korah then prays, but let them not turn back to folly. In light of all of this, in light of this awesome thing that God does, oh, let them not turn back to folly. Let me not turn back to folly. And that English word there that it was translated folly, that Hebrew word that's translated folly, that's far too polite a translation. Because the Hebrew word there is kisla. And, and forgive me for saying it in, in, in this, as this, but I, I, I got to be true to what the Hebrew says. Stupidity is the better translation. Let them not turn back to stupidity. As, as one uh, commentator says, he's not talking, Korah is, he's not talking about alternative lifestyles. He's, he's talking about turning away from God's paths as quite simply stupid and to be avoided at all costs. How could we, how could we, in, in, in just absolute mind-numbing uh, will, walk away from the God who is favorable to us when we don't deserve favor? Who speaks peace when we deserve condemnation? When God changes our address, he, cha he aims to change our heart. When he changes our heart, he aims to change our lifestyle. And sin, sin is like Novocaine. Right? It numbs the conscience. Sin is like Nigel Tufnell's amplifier that's turned to 11. Right? 
It makes us deaf to the voice of the Spirit. It blinds us to the beauty of God's holiness, His grace, and His majesty. Imagine, if you will, just the sheer terror of being blindfolded and taken to the edge of Niagara Falls. You know something big and noisy is out there, but you can't, you can't see it. You can feel it. Sin blinds us to the fact that God's majesty, His holiness, His greatness, His righteousness is so powerful, and yet sin blinds us to it. When you take the blindfold off, you go, That's what it's like. The antidote for sin is really to delight in God's grace and mercy more than in sin's stupid schemes because sin always overpromises and underdelivers. The more we focus our attention on what God has done for us, the more we realize how salvation is really near to those who, despite their sin and guilt, weakness and shame, fear God enough to trust Him to speak peace to their heart. Salvation is near to those who are dissolved by his goodness and weep to the praise of the mercy they found. Salvation is near to those whom God speaks a word of peace, grace, and forgiveness. And salvation is near to those who genuinely seek to walk in his ways every day. It's near to those who know God's grace is the means by which he changes their address in their heart to those who see God's glory dwelling in the midst of his people. I paused because I'm trying to remember, Jill read to me a quote by Thomas Watson on the way over here, that Watson, a Puritan, said that we more willingly seek comfort in other things, this is a paraphrase, we more willingly seek comfort in other things than go boldly on our knees to the throne of grace. I love that. Because it's at the throne of grace that God acknowledges, we acknowledge our weakness and our incapacity, and God says, that's exactly where I need you to be because I can lift you up and send you out, equipped and empowered. So remember, too, this idea of of, um, the reason why Korah prays that prayer, let him not turn back to folly, is because that's what Moses prayed. You, You read the end of Deuteronomy, particularly Deuteronomy 28, Moses is concerned that once Israel gets into the promised land, they start building, they they live in houses they didn't build, they start cultivating fields they didn't plant. He says, you're going to grow unaware, you're going to become insulated to the reality of what God did for you. And so Korah prays the same thing, realizing that grace, grace, God's grace is what provides everything they need for for them to be faithful to him. That's the last section, verses 10 to 13, that that everything that, that Korah prays depends on God's doing for Israel, God's doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It expresses his confidence in the Lord as the covenant-making, covenant-keeping, covenant-obligating God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, why is that important? It's important because the returnees needed to know that God was with them just as he was with their ancestors and that he would continue to be with them, that he was also with us as he was with them. The language here is beautiful, and it is covenant language. Steadfast love, which in Hebrew is another word, a marvelous word. 
And it's a great, fun word to say. You sort of go reach back to the back of your throat. You go, chesed. <laughs> steadfast love, steadfast faithfulness, covenant loyalty, loyal love, unbreakable love. It's just God will stick by you no matter what kind of love. And faithfulness here, another great word, emeth, truth. <sighs> Do we need truth? Do we need truth from our public officials? Do we need truth from the establishment? Do we get truth? I'll leave that up to you. I only know that when I want truth, I have to go to the one who is truth. I have to go to the one who is faithful and true. There's a lot of stuff that's out there which drives me back into the word to know to know that God's grace means that he treats us better than we deserve, that his grace is the foundation of spiritual renewal and revival, that when God's steadfast love and his faithfulness meet, we thrive and we flourish. That when God's righteousness and peace kiss each other, we are inspired to stay faithful to him. That when his faithfulness and Righteousness unite, we flourish because our Heavenly Father then delights indeed to give us our daily bread. That, that imagery of faithfulness springing up from the ground and righteousness shining down, protection, provision, it has to do with the wholeness of God's redemption. He saves people, He saves creation. It also harkens back to Deuteronomy 28. This was all part of God's blessing. He would bless the people, He would bless the land. So we, in terms of revival, right, one of the things that we can do in terms of revival is blessing others by sharing with them the good news that he gives us, does God, everything we need for life and godliness, everything. Life, jobs, health, friends, a community where we can worship him and grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, a mission to be salt and light in a world desperately in need of grace and mercy and truth, and shalom. So here's, uh, here's the point, and I'm wrapping this up. That God's faithfulness ought to inspire our faithfulness. That his righteousness ought to inspire our righteousness. But if we're honest, we're not always faithful. And we do not always act righteousness. So here's what God did. He sent righteousness in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus who, by the way, is also called faithful and true, to establish between God and him, of which we are the beneficiaries, an indestructible covenant, one that guarantees our redemption and secures our salvation because Jesus is the indestructible Savior who happens to be the way, the truth, and the life. He suffered, did Jesus, the ultimate exile, so that we will inherit a permanent homeland. That he experienced the ultimate return from exile when he rose from the dead, which then sets us free from the fear of death. In fact, because Christ conquered death, it can no longer separate us from the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. And that by God's grace, the thing that the enemy would use to separate us from God is the very thing God has transformed into the means by which we are united with him forever. That's beautiful. That's grace. And it's the means by which God changes our address and our heart. 
In fact, grace is the means by which God changes our heart. Now, the whole tone of Psalm 85 uh, reminds me of a, a phrase that was coined by my friend Bruce Edwards. Bruce is now uh, home with the Lord, but before Bruce died, he would often talk about being nostalgic for the future. I love that phrase. You know, we're often nostalgic for the past. Aren't we all? Right? You think about it. You think of nostalgia as like, oh, 10, 15, 20 years ago. I think we're nostalgic for like 2019. <laughs> just sort of like, just give me 2019 and I'll be happy. Right? But Bruce was nostalgic for the future. Because the past is the past. The future, the future is where life happens. The future awaits. Because the future is where we'll experience the ultimate change of address. It's where we will meet the one who has changed our heart, the one who is faithful and true. The future is where we will meet Jesus, who is, in fact, the Lord, our righteousness. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we acknowledge our dependence upon you. And with thanks and with uh, gratitude that is at times insufficient, we do say thank you for redeeming us and for giving us a mission and a purpose. May we be faithful, Lord God, not only to receive your grace, to thrive in it, but to share it so that others also may know it and thrive in it and worship you, who is faithful and true. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.